Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. It's fiction editor Meredith Morgenstern again, back with another episode celebrating the dark and divine feminine of Women in Horror Month. Before we get started, I know you love horror, and maybe you've heard of this horror author named Stephen King. <laughs> Tales to Terrify invites you back to Castle Rock by visiting stephenkingaudio.com for the long-awaited final installment of the New York Times best-selling trilogy, Gwendy's Button Box. This trilogy is spooky, and you know I just love a compelling female protagonist. Stephen King and Richard Chismar present their electrifying new audiobook, Gwendy's Final Task, available to download wherever you get your audiobooks or by going to stephenkingaudio.com to learn more. And guess what, listeners? Tales to Terrify has free copies to give away to a few lucky children of the night. Make sure to keep an eye on our social media to learn how you can win free copies of the Gwendy audiobooks. That's Tales to Terrify over on Twitter and Instagram, as well as Facebook.com slash Tales to Terrify. Now, just a reminder that Tales to Terrify is committed to highlighting the incredible diversity within the horror community. Therefore, when we talk about women in horror, we mean all women. 
For our third week, I'd like to talk a little bit about domestic horror, as it's a genre that often includes women at the center. It's also one of my personal favorite horror genres because I'm a huge Shirley Jackson fan. Domestic horror is characterized by home or family settings. Think haunted houses, like Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. Jackson, the mother of modern domestic horror, was herself a work-from-home mom of four. Her writing often explored the discontented, ugly, and dark sides of domestic life, especially in small towns. House and home have long been considered women's domain. Women are overwhelmingly the primary caretakers and homemakers of their families. Domestic horror challenges the idea that women are natural caretakers who are happy to exchange their individualism for the roles of wives and mothers. The villains in domestic horror cover a pretty wide spectrum of evil. We have evil buildings to live in, evil residents who live in a place, or evil spirits who haunt the residents of wherever. Sometimes the house wants our main character to leave, or it wants her to stay. The woman living inside is protective of her charges, or she terrorizes them. The best types of domestic horror aren't in your face from the first page. They are unnerving, unraveling slowly and quietly. They offer a vague sense of dread that simmers in the background until it simply can't be contained anymore. And finally, horrifically, it all boils over. Kind of like a woman who's had enough. Ready to explore the domestic world of haunted houses? Here are some creepy tales to get you started. I already mentioned The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. There's Mexican Gothic by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. And The Good House by Tanana Du. This is by no means a complete list. Let us know about your favorite domestic horror written by women by tagging us at Tales to Terrify over on Twitter. We have three stories for you this evening, written and narrated by a society of sinister sisters. Our first story is Murmuration by Saoirse Nee Kiragon. Saoirse Nee Kiragon is an Irish writer living in Berlin, Germany. Her work has previously appeared in anthologies from Ghost Orchid Press, Urhai Publishing, Pulse Publishing, and elsewhere. You can follow her on Twitter at Misery Vulture. To read more of her published work and get information on upcoming publications, visit her website, SirshaNiKiragon.com. Children of the Night, join me for Saoirse Nee Kiragon's Murmuration, a Tales to Terrify original. Dad's skull cracked, a wooden, 
snapping sound quickly dampened by the soft, wet slap of viscera on pavement, a symphonic flourish eliciting an involuntary shudder. The sound of his death was echoed around him as more and more descended from their roofs, eyes clouded and sulfur-yellow, swan-diving into the road below. For a brief moment, the sky was dark with bodies in flight, before they all fell and sent shards of their own skulls erupting through their scalps, human shrapnel catching the evening light. The slow trickle of post-workday traffic screeched to a panicked halt. Unlucky tires mounting mangled masses, still twitching before coming to sickly stillness. Around us all, the birds still chirped, and leaves continued to drift lazily from their boughs, ignorant of all that had occurred in their presence. Those of us who had borne witness stood, for how long I cannot say, unable to move or speak. In the distance I thought I could hear the hollow beating of yet more bodies plummeting. At last, cutting through the quiet, an elderly neighbor wailed, while the teenage boy next door doubled over and vomited onto the lawn. In the weeks preceding, Dad had been complaining about his eyesight. I would later learn, as many would, that this was how it began. Though, at the time, I dismissed his complaints due to his age, his stubborn refusal to don his glasses when reading or watching TV. He had a bad habit of sitting in the dark, sleep eluding him since Mom's passing, letting the 24-hour news cycle lull him into a shallow, upright rest. He told me, having surprised me at work with a phone call, that he kept seeing something in his peripheral vision. What kind of something, I asked. Well, Jesus, I don't know. If I knew, I'd have specified. I can never tell if the irritability was due to exhaustion, to the grief, or if it was just Dad. Had he always been so short-tempered? I waded through the haze of childhood memories to find answers, but always came up short. Can you describe it? He sighed his impatience and waning interest in the conversation starkly apparent through the hiss of dead air in the receiver. Like a dark something, he huffed. Sort of dances around a bit. You've got to wear those glasses, Dad. A snort, derisive. All right, Doc. I'm serious, and speak to an actual doctor? Yeah, yeah. It was an old routine of his, to act like he didn't care, that I was being unreasonable in my concern, when he had been the one to introduce the topic in the first place. It was as though he chased after some kind of affection, only to run from it when it came too close. I'll admit that, at that point in my life, I'd begun to tire of it. Anyway, I know you're probably busy. Yeah, I've, I've got to get back to work. He hung up before I had the chance to say anything else, to dissipate the strange anxiety and restless agitation that had begun to swell within my chest the moment I heard his voice. 
how he would have hated to see what became of himself. When the manifestos surfaced, one of the many constants among them is that the fallen believed they would burst through the concrete, propel themselves forward to the other side. No doubt Dad had believed the same. The sad reality was that he didn't so much as leave a crack. His pulp was scraped away with the rest. The fire brigade called to hose the blood from the street. In the days that followed his call, I found myself knotted tight with worry. We'd been too late finding Mom's cancer. She was never one to make a fuss and didn't express any worry for her health until it had progressed beyond the point of treatable. In the end, it was all so abrupt, so unkind. I expected Dad to come undone. He never did. He simply retreated into an icy stoicism. It was a tightrope walk, attempting to be there for him without insulting him somehow. I realized with some shame that his phone call had been the first time he'd reached out since Mom had passed. When the weekend rolled around, I pulled up to the house with groceries and a six-pack. An uneasy peace offering for some vague sin I wasn't entirely sure I'd committed. I waited at the door, hearing him shuffle within, the family dog snapping at his heels and yelping with excitement. As he opened the door, I noted that there were multiple locks to be undone, recently installed. Wasn't expecting anybody, he croaked. All the same, he angled away from the door to allow me entry. You upping the security around here? I asked over my shoulder as I made my way to the kitchen. The counters were stacked with unwashed dishes, dried smears of cheese sauce, and hardened macaroni noodles stuck fast to the ceramic. Huh? I attempted to clear space to set down the groceries, taking in the scene. The curtains were all pulled, newspapers dating back several months piled on the dining table, all open and ringed with coffee stains. You got a lot of new locks on the door. He shrugged, shuffling into view. Just being careful. I nodded, unthinkingly fussing with the piles of paper, idle and anxious hands seeking order. Dad shifted uncomfortably. Like I said, I wasn't expecting nobody. I stopped, suddenly feeling like an intruder, and returned once more to the groceries, lifting them from the bag and opening the barren refrigerator. The light from within threw the gloominess of our surroundings into high relief. It's dark in here, Dad. Don't bother me none. The feet of a kitchen chair screeched against the floor as he pulled himself a seat and unearthed a laptop from beneath the overlapping pages of newspapers. I pulled the curtains nearest to me, letting in some light, and popped the caps off two beers before I approached. Here, I offered, dangling the bottle over his shoulder before taking the seat next to his. He grunted some gratitude, already busy poring over the contents of his computer screen. I thought I saw his eyes flick to the side to regard me, a sudden uneasiness settling over his expression, 
before they returned once more to the screen, and he took a swig of the beer. How have your eyes been? He sighed, wiping the beer from his lips with the back of his hand, shoulders going slack. Not great. You speak to the doctor yet? Another swig, and I began to suspect that he was avoiding my gaze. Not yet. I took solace in my own beer, gulping deep while I considered my approach. Though the laptop cast a pale blue glow towards his face, I noticed that some yellow light still glinted in Dad's eyes. Dad, look at me. He didn't move. Don't start your fussing. Dad, I'm serious. Look at me for a second. With a deep exhale, he slowly turned his head towards me, squinting in the low light from the kitchen window. Damn, but it's bright. Covering his pupils, cloudy as cataracts, were opaque patches of yellow. I leaned closer to inspect them, felt his shallow breath against my face, and became aware of the light trembling of his hands. Christ, Dad, that doesn't look good. He turned from me, back towards the screen. Close those curtains, would you? I didn't move, still leaning towards him. That looks really bad. We should get you to a doctor. To the hospital or something. He shook his head, rose slowly and made his way to the open curtains, eyes closed all the while, feeling his way as though blind. Once his shaking hands found the drapes, he pulled them tight and turned around to me, eyes open. I've been reading about it online. He made his way back towards me, gesturing to the open laptop. Reading about what? Can you even see right? He fell heavily back into his seat and scrolled through what appeared to be a forum. With a pointed finger, he gestured to the screen. I'm not the only one. I scanned the page, struggling to make sense of what I was reading. Accounts of people with clouded eyes, hallucinations, and a desire to burrow deep into the ground. What is this? Are these people joking or what? Dad shook his head, solemn but with something I can only suspect was pride or purpose. There was a palpable sense of mounting excitement about him. He suddenly seemed more animated than I had seen him in months. It's the hell vision, he said with great authority. I suppressed a laugh, eyes growing wide as I registered his sincerity. What are you talking about? There are some of us that can see. I don't know why, but we can. It started with that stuff in my peripheral. I leaned back in my chair, once more taking in the squalor in which Dad had been living, the darkness, taking in how much he had allowed himself to deteriorate in Mom's absence. You wouldn't believe the things I've seen, he said, yellowed eyes gazing off. Things that shouldn't be real. Flesh blooming like apple blossoms, 
spores of bone dancing on the breeze and latching where they fall, calcifying into gnarled monuments bursting from a pulsing earth. I pulled my phone from my pocket, keying in the numbers as he spoke. Dad, I'm calling an ambulance. It's hell, sweetheart. And it's calling to us with all its seduction, making mock beauty of filth so that we will wander willingly into the trap of damnation. I could hear the call ringing through, the phone poised just close enough to my ear, hands shaking as I regarded the old man before me, somehow a stranger now, speaking nonsense. Those of us who see must fall like angels and do battle. We're the only ones who can save you, the only ones who can save us all. The operator was answered by my rasping breath, stunned silent from Dad's statements. Though he didn't attempt to stop me when I found my voice, gave the address and watched as he was led out of the house by paramedics, though he never showed any resistance, he later discharged himself from hospital and returned quietly to his home. When I would visit again, there would be more locks on the door. He wouldn't answer. I stood outside, ear to the door. The dog sniffed around me, thin and whimpering, exiled to the yard. Between my rapping and beseeching, begging him to open the door and let me in, I could hear him, muttering just under his breath, an unending torrent of words spoken like a prayer. We'd never been religious. Dad had stormed out of the ward when my Aunt Lily, Mom's sister, arranged for a priest to arrive and perform the last rites. He said Mom would never have wanted that, but at that stage she was too far gone and couldn't talk for herself, and the people talking for her couldn't agree. Lily figured better safe than sorry, and ushered the meek and balding Father Grogan past the thin curtain partition, separating Mom from the other patients. There, he draped a string of plastic rosary beads across her limp white hand and began to recite words I didn't recognize, prayers I'd been spared from hearing through a lifetime of being kept out of churches. Dad didn't want Mom in a hospital at all. He had stopped trusting most doctors long before Mom's diagnosis. It was just a quirk of his, an eccentric skepticism none of us paid much mind to. When Mom got sick, he printed articles about herbs and vibrations and all the ways to heal a body that don't involve chemo and surgery. I think she tried to argue, but she was weak, physically and emotionally. He had a way of talking you down, assaulting you with words and words and words, and by the end of it you'd be too tired and suddenly doubtful of your own thoughts. When she started coughing up lung tissue... I admitted her. I don't think he forgave me for that. I held my breath, trying to make out the words as I stood on the step. I strained until Dad's voice was met by another, speaking in unison. Just beyond the fence separating the front lawns, the lady next door walked slowly, her eyes cast in that same yellow haze and muttering all the while. 
gashed horizon, bleeding light, gouged from the gristle of the old and the angels. The angels pierce its heart burrow deep, return to the womb of torment, and cut through the webbing viscera. I turned around and watched as neighbors passed, many blinded by the haze and all muttering, teeth flashing and spittle flecking the air. Some were guided indoors by their families, faces fraught, lined deep with panic and confusion. Even safely indoors, their voices united like a chorus, the sibilance of their whispers tugging my skin into goose flesh. The following evening, they jumped. I had spent the night in my car, parked in Dad's driveway. Some sad part of me had hope enough that he might open the door, if not to let me in, then for the dog, or to take the trash out. But the dog howled all night to no answer, and I soon found myself falling asleep beneath my coat as I leaned against the driver's side window. How do you come to understand something like that? When the homes were searched, they found writings on the walls, in notebooks, carved into furniture, the same endless stretch of words echoing the murmuring dead, covering everything. I checked Dad's search history, read all the same posts, desperate for some answer. I tried to trace it back as far as I could, tried to understand how it could happen. Nobody had answers. And then I couldn't sleep. I would watch the news, let the same Vox Pops wash over me late into the night, hoping that some puzzle piece would fall into place and it would all be revealed to me. I saw cell phone footage of the fall played again and again, the silhouettes against the gray sky, the dull sound of all those bodies, the steady beat, the brief moment in which they all soared. And soon I saw it, out of the corner of my eye, dancing there. Dancing, the very word he had used. I kept thinking if I moved quickly enough, I could catch it. Could stare it straight in the eye and all would make sense. But it was always too fast for me. Then the haze descended and the sights opened to me. The vulgar hues so saturated, vivid as a gaping wound. The inescapable beauty of it. How grotesque it was. The fattened land and all its fissures. Weeping pus and sebum and all of us swimming against the current of... And the angels. The angels that must take up arms, must fall and stake their claim to the land that has been denied them as it rots and festers beneath their wings, their wings kicking up the miasma of decay and paroxysms of righteous fury, and the day will come that it all drains from the flesh and the land will be purified, and until then it is hell, it is hell, sweetheart, it is hell.
That was Searshi Near Caragon's Murmuration, as read by Summer Brooks. Summer Brooks is a bit of a television addict and enjoys putting her sci-fi media geek skills to good use in interviewing guests. She has been a co-host for Slice of Sci-Fi from 2005 to 2009, the co-host for the Babylon podcast from 2006 to 2012, and host of Kick-Ass Mystic Ninjas, before returning to Slice of Sci-Fi full-time as host and producer in August 2014. She is an avid reader and writer of sci-fi, fantasy, and thrillers, with a handful of publishing credits to her name. Next on her agenda is writing an urban fantasy tale and a B-movie monster extravaganza. Currently, Summer designs and maintains websites for clients, in addition to having fun with the Slice of Sci-Fi websites, and also does voiceover and narrations for Tales to Terrify, Starship Sofa, and Escape Pod, among others. Thank you, Summer. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Our next story is The Concert Cave by Dana Vickerson. Dana is a writer and architect living in Dallas. When she's not crafting stories or designing buildings, she's dissecting horror movies with her husband and telling spooky tales to her little girls. Her work will be featured in the upcoming anthology, The Halloween Book by Twelve House Books. You can find her on Twitter at DM Vickerson. Children of the Night, join me for Dana Vickerson's The Concert Cave, another Tales to Terrify original.
Sid didn't want to come to this festival. She hates jam bands, but Brett loves them, so she caved. She still doesn't want to be here in the heat, hours from a decent air conditioner, and she certainly didn't want to eat the shriveled purple mushrooms. What even is a concert cave? Sid asks. She's sitting on an overturned milk crate, scrutinizing the flyer in her hands. The words melt off the page, an indiscernible bubbling of bright colors her brain is too fried to read. Brett lifts his head out of his forearms where it's been for the last ten minutes. Uh-huh. Concert cave. What the fuck is that? Brett is moving his jaw in weird ways, trying to form words. Like the acoustics are supposed to be sick. Crazy vibrations. His grin is wide and sloppy. Plus, it's full of these. He lifts the bag of dried purple mushrooms they were given when they pulled their Civic off the long gravel road into the open field. They've been to a lot of festivals, but this one is surely the most remote, the most unconventional, and that's saying something. She's never received drugs as an entry gift, not so overtly, at least. Brett stands and stretches, looking like an inflatable tube man, leaning too far back and off balance. He rubs at the candy necklace slashed across his bulging Adam's apple. He's chewed a few off, which Sid likes, because it leaves his lip and neck tasting of sugar. With his hand outstretched, he says, Getting dark. Show's gonna start. The world tilts sideways as she tries to stand. Around them, people flood in one direction. Sid scans the crowd of dusty hippies, preppy students, and ancient burners. She wonders how everyone heard about this festival. It wasn't on Jambase, the website Brett is constantly scanning for the next show. They were just drunk on Dixon one night when someone ran up and pressed the flyer into their hands. Sid feels like she might puke. The crowd is too close. She hears the crunch of every rope sandal, the chatter of hundreds of moving mouths. She's done mushrooms plenty of times, but this come up was fast and overwhelming. Babe? Hey, Sid. Brett is grabbing her arm. She's doubled over and her world is a kaleidoscope. He's fucked too, having eaten twice as many as she did. They stumble forward with the crowd many of whom doing the familiar dance of someone who has ingested far too many hallucinogens. Sid lifts her head enough to see over the bodies. There are hundreds of red, yellow, and white lights strung through tree canopies. The lights make a mesh of swirling, trailing arcs against the darkening sky. At the head is a huge vertical cliff. It's imposing making Sid feel like she's walking up to an ancient building, a rock skyscraper. The striations of thousands of years of erosion left by the long-gone river are undulating, breathing, and the end of their path leads directly into a gaping mouth, the concert cave. The crowd funnels into a tight mass as it moves through the entrance to the cave. Sid's skin explodes in goosebumps as the temperature drops 30 degrees. It's a relief from the summer heat. And she sighs and leans harder on Brett. These mushrooms are, she manages, 
unable to string together comprehensible sentences. I am so... Yeah, sick, right? He whispers. Sid is starting to think this is a bad idea. Everything feels ominous. She doesn't know why you need to dose to enjoy a band. That maybe there's something lacking if you have to be messed up to enjoy the music. The familiar specters of fear and anxiety are like black voids creeping along the edges of her vision. Yes, bad idea, she thinks. Too much. Ate way too much. By the time they make it inside the cave, she's truly feeling sick. The bodies around her swaying and bulging in horrifying ways. She tries to hold Brett's hand, but it feels like his fingers are slimy tentacles. She recoils and pulls away. There are too many people in here. The air is thick with sweat and pot and the indiscernible chatter of people laughing. She can't catch her breath. Brett turns to her, and his face is a drooping, bloated sack, pulling away from the skull in different directions. She thinks she's screaming, but then she's not. She's laughing. She's holding his mushy cheeks in her hands, and he's bred again, and his concern is replaced by unbridled giggling. And then he's another person entirely. And this stranger welcomes her touch. She lurches away, looking for Brett, looking for the exit. She pushes back to the opening and can see moonlight through the trees. The sun is gone, replaced by milky stars. She hears the music start. It's lilting, ephemeral. She turns back to see everyone inside the cave staring dumbfounded at the center of the dusty rock floor, where a robed musician is playing an antique instrument. Is it a lute? Sid thinks. She moves closer, drawn by its oddity and the calming melody. The figure is illuminated by a circle of multicolored LED puck lights she hadn't noticed before. The lights flash through a rainbow of colors as the music speeds up. People start to dance. The lights are full strobe now, throwing stop-motion shadows all around the cave's walls and ceiling. Sid feels the music pulsing, humming through her body. Faster, faster. She spins in a circle, watching the shapes on the walls, looking for Brett looking back for the entrance in the moon. Anything to ground her. Anything to calm the rising vibrations in her body. But there is no moon, no entrance, just cave walls. She doesn't know if she's moved farther in or if the entrance has vanished. She feels popping in her brain. Then the music stops. The lights go out. And everyone stands in the darkness. Breathing, waiting. When the music starts again, it's wholly different. Altogether horrible and twisted. Too harsh, too loud. The lights come back on, but this time they flash alternating red and white. It feels too bright, then too dim. Too bright, too dim. The crowd explodes into movement. Not dancing, more violent. 
Everywhere around her, people start to scream. The ground feels uneven, less firm than the smooth rock before. And she realizes what she's standing on. People are being trampled. People are convulsing. People are immobile. Two guys in front of her tear at each other's clothes. At first she thinks they're making out. But then it's violent. So violent, and they are screaming. Sid is screaming too, but she can't hear anything. Just the music. She's pushing, sliding, twisting through the mass of bodies. Where is Brett? She's screaming his name, but all she hears is the horrible music. She sees a crack in the wall and thinks it's the entrance. She pushes through it. But it's not the entrance. Of course it's not. It's too small, and there's no moon. But it's something, and she's inside. It really is too small, though. She's stuck. She turns back to the cave and the shadows of the festival kids tearing each other apart. She claws inside the crack, trying to pull herself deeper, trying to hide. Her nails dig into something soft and organic. Every few seconds, the strobe lights illuminate her hands, and she sees thousands of purple mushrooms, all pulsing with the music, their gills open and dripping. Is that blood? It's on her fingers, her wrists, her arms. Sid thrusts back and pops free of the crack of the freaky mushrooms. She's on the cave floor, and it's too squishy. Too wet. Bodies. So many bodies. Her eyes are shut tight against the lights and the shapes on the ceiling. She's crawling even as she's being crushed. Her hands are searching. Everything under her is pulsing. And she refuses to look. Then she feels him. Her hands press down on a neck. A candy necklace. A prominent Adam's apple. Brett. She opens her eyes, and she sees in wild, disoriented waves. He's lying on the ground, dead eyes staring at the ceiling. His body is covered in bulbous, pulsing purple mushrooms. They're everywhere. They're all around them. They're on everything. She pulls her hands away and stares at her palms, and the tendrils of purple shoots emerge from her skin. Someone falls on top of her. The body is heavy and unmoving. She lays her head against Brett's chest and digs her fingers into the soft, wet growth. She didn't want to come, didn't want to be here. But she's found him, and they're together. And now they'll never be apart. That was Dana Vickerson's The Concert Cave, as read by Amanda Stribling. Amanda has recorded close to 150 books, give or take a chapter, and is in the industry by way of being completely obsessed with reading and audiobooks, while also having a flair and passion for performance. 
She has a natural Southern accent, but can also take you from savvy socialite to California girl to Southern belle faster than you can say, bless your heart. Thank you, Amanda. Our third and final story of the evening is Necroglossia by J.M. Merritt. J.M. Merritt hails from Canberra, Australia. Her other works include Gravid and The Bargain. She has recently completed a mentorship with Deborah Sheldon and is currently working on a horror fantasy novel. Children of the Night, join me for J.M. Merritt's Necroglossia, another Tales to Terrify original. There have always been those who can raise the dead. Eglantine had always had that knack. A linguist and a lover of shadows and solitude, she carved herself a meager squat in the derelict library at her erstwhile university. Broad and old was her home, any natural light blotted out by thick curtains flickering gaslight, the only source of illumination. The light pooled in clearings between the shelves, casting massive shadows. The library smelt sweet with the stench of ancient dust and fresh rot. Eglantine made a habit of flitting between shelves, groaning under the weight of crumbling paper. Mushrooms, glowing blue and green in the gloom, inched their way up from the floor, devouring vellum and words. The book screamed. The dead words would soon be lost, whether to age or to damp. Eglantine sought to preserve them at all costs. These books were bloated with forbidden knowledge, whispering their secrets in the dark. To look upon those books, to gaze upon the words scratched onto their pages, was to go insane. It was for this reason the library went untended, the university faculty hoping that the last remnants of the old world would be lost to time. The books muttered in the tongue of the old ones a murdered language, old beyond reckoning and incomprehensible to human ears. It was the last fragment of a pantheon of hungry things, something Eglantine thought worth study. Every night, she would sit hunched on her sagging camp bed, jotting down every word. She was determined to decode this dead tongue, more than that, Eglantine intended to bring the necroglossia into common use. She wanted to raise it from the dead. One night, she succeeded. 
Nestled between decaying towers of paper, Eglantine decided to use a different tactic. After a decade of little progress, she decided to use her other talent, a gift that had led to her being ostracized from society. It's hard to love someone who lovingly gathers dead things, tends to them mindless of the rot. Her family had been prepared to live with a taxidermist, but it became too much when their daughter's stuffed animals began to scuttle around the house. They kicked her out. Seeking sanctuary, Eglantine had broken into the library. Quickly becoming obsessed with decoding and preserving the moldering books, she decided to devote herself to this one task. Now Eglantine sat on her camp bed, legs crossed, and reached out to the necroglossia. Drifting into a trance, she felt her consciousness slow to a syrupy thickness. Her breath rasped in her ears, her pulse a feeble thing. Eglantine had cloistered herself away, had starved herself for days, her hunger pangs a twisting agony easily ignored out of long practice. To meet with the dead, one must mimic them. At the edges of her mind, Eglantine felt a tickle, a touch, soft and feather-light, traced the edges of her consciousness, teasing. Eglantine reveled in the contact. She smirked. Alien words poured off the books, condensing into a tangible mass. They scurried away, a multitude of words, consonants, and vowels, darting about like a school of fish evading a shark. Eglantine chuckled. It's okay, she said, extending a hand as if reassuring a skittish cat. Don't be shy. The mass of dead words halted, pondering. They inched closer, encouraged, lightly resting against Eglantine. Abrupt, they bit down. Eglantine screamed. The slaughtered language drilled into Eglantine's brain, sending out roots like a million tiny harpoons. The necroglossia anchored itself. Only then did Eglantine understand. This wasn't merely the language of the old ones. It was a hive mind. The necroglossia was that nightmare pantheon, stripped of flesh and form. Ravenous, they sought out a host. Eldritch words sank into Eglantine's brain, carving words into meat and her mind snapped under the weight of it. The old ones had drifted in from the void a million years ago, regarding humans as fleas. They hungered for revenge, for the death of everything, to devour all they had created. As one, the necroglossia lifted Eglantine's arm. They sought to hollow her out, 
to wear her as a rotting thing, invading her like a bloom of blood in water. Eglantine gritted her teeth and pushed back. No, she managed. Let me serve you. The Necroglossia paused, deciding that this could prove amusing. We hunger so, they sang, metallic and sibilant. Their voice, like acid, pitted the walls and etched ancient words into glass. Three windows shattered. Eglantine nodded, swallowed with a click. Then I will feed you. Untangling her legs, she staggered to her feet, endless millennia's worth of knowledge crammed into her skull, her back bowed under the strain. Eglantine laughed. For the first time in a decade, Eglantine crossed into the foyer and threw the doors wide. Aimless, she wandered into the night. The air was damp, heavy with the promise of rain. Her breath misted about her face, and she shivered, unused to being outdoors. A dictionary's worth of words inscribed upon her skin, Eglantine's eyes, bloodshot and shiny with tears, darted about. A nightmare thing, she wandered into a nearby settlement. The city was a cobblestoned construction, teetering buildings bristling close together like tombstones in an overstuffed graveyard. Eglantine scuttled through the narrows until she came upon an open window. Hauling herself into a narrow ledge of painted brickwork, Eglantine stared into a room lit by a nightlight. There was a cot just under the window, its infant inhabitant clutching a plush giraffe. Eglantine scooped out the baby, silently regarding the tiny thing all dressed in blue. There were little pink bunnies on its jumpsuit. The child bawled, all confusion and frustration. Eglantine smiled with rotten teeth. I will feed you, she said to the necroglossia. Clutching the child to her chest, she backed out of the room. Swift as a thought, Eglantine darted back into the night. That was J.M. Merritt's Necroglossia, as read by Maureen McLean. Maureen McLean is an Austin musician, plucking the bass with acoustic bands, the Therapy Sisters, and a proper cup of coffee. She earns her keep in the courtroom, interpreting real-life terrifying tales from Spanish to English. Thank you, Maureen. Well, children of the night, the hour has grown late, the spirits of the house have been silenced, and we've run out of tales to tell for now. 
Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show for free? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you stream, and leave us a five-star review. We really do read our reviews, and you'll help convert new listeners to the terrifying tales we provide. Share your love of Tales to Terrify out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our tea public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs. Tales to Terrify is produced by Drew Sebastini, Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Meredith Morgenstern. Our original theme is by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we appease the poltergeists with more Tales to Terrify. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.